Turn with me once more to 1 John chapter 3, if you have your copy of God's Word. You know, one of the greatest books ever written was, uh, was written by John Bunyan. It's The Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan was in the uh, Bedford prison. His only crime was obedience to his Savior. He was locked up in jail for preaching the gospel without a license. And all he had to do to be released from jail was simply say he would no longer preach, but he refused to do that. But remarkably, there in that Bedford jail, uh, God gave him perhaps his greatest ministry opportunity. But The Pilgrim's Progress, written by Bunyan in 1678, uh, in his own day, Benjamin Franklin even considered it to be more widely read than any other work of literature with the exception of the Bible. But if you're familiar with The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, you know that it's an allegory which Bunyan told about the Christian life. And the main character in The Pilgrim's Progress is a man by the name of Christian who leaves his home in the city of destruction, and he sets out on a journey for the celestial city. And so really the story is just an illustration of how the life of faith as we know it involves difficulty as we make our way from earth to heaven. So on his journey, Christian loses a heavy burden that he had been carrying. He loses it at the place of the cross, and it's swallowed up in an empty tomb. Uh, he meets some interesting characters along the way in his journey, some of whom are very deceptive and try to talk him out of his journey. He passes through a town called Vanity Fair, which is a picture of the battle with the world that every believer faces. Uh, he wades through a swamp, the slough of despond, and there he faces depressions and despondency that sometimes come to the Christian. And all of us are familiar with those seasons. We've been there, and we'll be there again at some point. But Bunyan also points us to the experience of Christian in, in, in one memorable scene. Uh, he and his travel companion, uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Hopeful, they find themselves in a real place of despair known as Doubting Castle. And it's really fascinating the way that Bunyan describes it. But they're spending the night on this piece of property, unaware that they're passing through the property of a giant. And the giant's name is Despair. And his wife, her name is Diffidence, which means distrustful. So the two of these, I mean, this pair, they, they preside over Doubting Castle. The giant finds Christian and hopeful on his property, immediately seizes them, carries them into the castle, locks them away in just this foul, dark dungeon. And the giant begins to scold them like dogs, beats them with clubs, and just tells them that they're never going to get out of his awful prison. And in really, really the only way they could get out the giant says, was for them to take their own lives. So for a period of time, you've got Christian on his journey, finds himself locked up in Doubting Castle, assumes that his life is over. But one night at midnight, he happens to remember that he has a key in his pocket. And that key unlocks every door in Doubting Castle. 
And as Bunyan describes it, the name of that key is promise. Promise. And that's why this passage of Scripture that we're going to come to here in 1 John chapter 3 is so very important because the Apostle John, in many ways, he's writing to some believers who had been living in Doubting Castle. They'd been wrestling with their own share of doubts and issues that had plagued their minds and their conscience. But in this text, the Apostle John reminds his readers of that wonderful key called promise. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got this key in your pocket too. So I want you to read with me beginning with verse number 19, 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, have you ever been there? Have you ever faced the accusation of your own heart and your own conscience, grappling with things, maybe in the long dark of night, some agony within your soul, you've sensed that your heart is condemning you for whatever reason. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the Christian's grounds for assurance. The Christian's grounds for assurance. So much of what John says in this little letter is helpful when it comes to possessing assurance in the Christian life. Assurance of God's love, uh, assurance of forgiveness, the assurance that we're indeed in possession of true saving faith. Every Christian needs to live with the assurance of his or her salvation because this is the key to joy. And so John is calling upon the believers of his day to return to a simple, intimate, moment-by-moment walk with Jesus Christ. Remember how he said this back in chapter 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. We have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with one another in the family of God. So John's answer to the problems of the day is a closer walk with Jesus and with one another. We've got a lot of problems in our day. There are a lot of issues going on in our world. Uh, We've got issues going on in our own individual worlds. So what's the answer to that? Well, John would say it's a closer walk with Jesus and a closer walk with one another in the family of God. And these two things need to be kept priority if we're going to live confidently even while the world around us seems to be unraveling. And so confidence is one of those things that are vital to a healthy and productive Christian experience. Uh, Confidence is not the same thing as arrogance, mind you. No, the confidence that the Apostle John is saying that every believer ought to have, it's confidence that's based upon the promise of God. 
Confidence in knowing who Jesus is. Confidence in knowing who I have been made to be in Jesus Christ. And so every believer needs to live with this kind of certainty. The certainty that you're saved. The certainty that you possess eternal life. Now some people would say, well, claims of certainty are indeed arrogant on our part as believers. But listen, it's never arrogant to take God at his word. What's arrogant is to reject or question what God has plainly said in his word. But to to take God at his word, this is faith. And the confidence we possess as believers comes from belief which is founded upon the truth of Scripture. And God has plainly told us through the pen of the Apostle John that we've passed from death into life. He's made that statement back up in verse 14 here in chapter 3. Uh, John uses this word know at least 37 times throughout his letter, reinforcing the truth that spiritual confidence and assurance of salvation, this is the believer's promise. You can know with certainty that you're saved. And in fact, confident living demands that you have this assurance that you're saved. And so there's a lot we can't know, there's a lot we don't know, but salvation's not one of them. God wants you to know with certainty and confidence that you have eternal life. In chapter 5, verse 13, John explains the purpose of his letter. He says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And yet, we also know that not everyone lives with the assurance of their salvation. And why is that the case? How is it that we come to possess assurance of our salvation? Well, these are the questions that John answers for us here in this passage. And so the issue being addressed is this subject of assurance. What are the grounds or the basis for the believer's assurance? And how can I know with certainty that I'm truly saved? Well, notice a few things from the text Uh, Number one, notice with me how John really deals with the condemnation that we all face internally. The condemnation that we face or that we feel internally. Now again, bear in mind the fact his purpose has not been to cast doubt on the reality of the believer's salvation. He doesn't want the believers to, to, uh, uh, to have a lack of confidence in this respect, but rather he's writing to reinforce their confidence to reinforce their understanding. He says in verse 19, by this we shall know. He says the same thing a few verses later. What's he referring to? By this we will know that we're of the truth. Well, it's the truth that he's already explained in the previous verses. It's by loving the brethren, not merely in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Whenever we love others the way that Jesus loved in a selfless, sacrificial way, we're demonstrating that a new nature dwells within us. And so John says this is how we know that we're of the truth, and we reassure our heart before him. That word reassure there translates a verb that means to convince or persuade. It carries this idea of assurance. Our confidence is based on the fact that we've believed in Jesus and we're members of the family of God. Now as his obedient children, we love one another. So why is this reassurance so important? Well, it's because of self-doubt. Because inevitably, there are going to be times in our lives as believers when our heart condemns us 
And by using that word heart there, John is describing feelings that are associated with our conscience. Now, if you use your imagination for just a moment, maybe he understands that his readers would reflect upon his words in the previous verses where he's described the selfless, sacrificial love of Christ. Since he has laid down his life for us in such a manner, John said we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That is, the pattern for the way that we love and relate to each other is the way that God has loved us in Jesus Christ. We ought to go out of our way to meet needs in the lives of other people where we can. And yet, as we read those words, our, our hearts may feel the prick of uneasiness as our conscience points out our imperfection in this matter. Because let's just be honest, who can ever say, I've loved others the way Jesus has loved me? I'm loving my brother or my sister in a selfless, sacrificial way, just in the way that the Son of God has loved me. Well, we know we're not perfect like Jesus. None of us love like Jesus. None of us demonstrate this continual selfless love like Jesus does. And all of us have moments when we only think of ourselves. And so our conscience then might begin to accuse us. Your conscience is a powerful thing. You realize that? Your conscience is a built-in mechanism that serves as a warning light whenever it comes to sin. You know what a warning light is in your vehicle and why that warning light's so very important. You know, when it comes on, usually if it says, you know, engine light, your check engine light comes on, you'd better do something. You better get the vehicle into the shop because something's not right under the hood. Well, our conscience sort of functions in the same way. The Bible says that every person is born with the law of God written upon their heart. That is, the law of God is stamped upon the human conscience. Every person has a conscience which will then accuse or excuse them depending upon how they act with regard to the law. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. He says, even Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires. He says that they show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so this is one more way in which there's evidence man's been made in the image of God. Man has a sense of morality even though that sense of morality has been affected by his sin. That's what it means every person has this inward sense of right and wrong. When the law of God has been broken, your conscience acts as a guilt-producing warning device. And in that sense, this is really a gift from God so that you can flee to Christ who is your righteousness and who is your peace. John Wesley said that a conscience functions in at least three ways. He said, first, it's a witness testifying to what we've done in thought, word, or action. Second, it's a judge passing sentence on what we've done, that it's good or evil. And then he said, third, in some sort, it executes the sentence by producing a degree of satisfaction in him who does well and a degree of uneasiness in him that does evil. So a person can ignore their conscience, they can stifle their conscience, suffocate their conscience by persisting in sin, and the result will be that they have a cauterized conscience. 
And Paul deals with this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, talking about those whose consciences had been seared like with a hot iron. You know when something's cauterized, the nerve ending's dead, there's a loss of feeling. That's kind of the idea there. A person who just ignores their conscience to such a degree that they press it down, press it down, press it down. Eventually, that conscience can become cauterized. And a person can become without feeling. And that is a dangerous place for the sinner to be. Because what the law of God does, the law of God appeals to the conscience of a man or a woman arising within that person's heart, producing within that person's heart their sense of, of disobedience and the fact that the law's been broken. And in that sense, it points them to Jesus Christ. Now, here's the issue. What about those who are already saved? Because that's who John's dealing with here. He's not dealing with those who aren't saved and those who've been ignoring their conscience. He's talking about believers whose hearts condemn them. Now, here's the thing. The irony of this you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that doesn't desensitize you towards sin. It actually makes you more sensitive towards sin, doesn't it? Because when the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence within your life as a believer, one of the effects of, of his presence within you will be an increased sensitivity towards sin. And so how do we deal with these issues when we're being plagued by our conscience? Maybe things that we've said, things that we've done attitudes that we've had, even as believers. How do we respond to that? Well, you need to remember the truth of God's words, what you need to do. If it's genuine Holy Spirit conviction being produced within you over something you've said or something you've done or some sinful action in your life, take God at his word, confess that sin, get it under the blood, and, and, and listen, it's forgiven. Uh, you've been forgiven. And you, your confidence then is based upon the promise of God in Jesus Christ. So where there's this internal sense of condemnation, assurance will not be present because I won't feel that I'm saved. You know, the devil works. He's so sinister in the way that he works. He tries to convince lost people that they're saved and saved people that they're lost. He wants lost people to think that everything's fine between them and God, but at the same time, he wants to so harass the child of God is that he wants you to be burdened down and weighed down with guilt to such a degree that you're sidelined in your service. Now, there's some people who have assurance who have no right to it because they're not saved to begin with. They feel all is well between them and God when the fact is it's not. Theirs is a failure to understand and believe the gospel. But on the other hand, you've got those who are saved, but they don't live with a sense of assurance that they are. Well, the issue here is also a failure of understanding, but not because the gospel has not been welcomed and embraced in their lives. No, the gospel has been reduced and obscured out of a sense of unmet performance. Key to their thinking, it's not Jesus Christ and his righteousness, but it's, it's my own failure. It's my own sense of need. This is what I fixate upon. And listen, when I dwell upon my own failure and my own sense of need, assurance will be lost. The scripture never tells you as a child of God to fixate upon your own inadequacy and to focus your mind and your thoughts upon your own inadequacy and failures and foibles. You wanna know what the object of your focus needs to always be as a believer? 
Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We need to lay aside all of the weight in our life, the sin that easily ensnares us. And then here's what he says. Looking unto Jesus with your eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus who is the author and perfecter of your faith. It's like the story of Peter when he's in the boat. Jesus is walking on water. And and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to where you are. And Peter gets out of the boat, and and for a moment, Peter's walking on the water. But he's walking on the water in as much as Jesus is his focus. But the moment that he takes his eyes off Jesus and he begins to focus on his circumstances, his weakness, the wind, the waves, the storm, what happens? He begins to sink. The same thing's true in my life and your life as a believer. We'll lose our sense of assurance when in our failures, This is all that we fixate upon. And so we need to remember that the Christian life, we walk by faith and not by sight. This issue of salvation is an issue of faith, not feeling. I'm glad that there are feelings associated with being saved. But let me tell you something. On time change Sunday when it's awfully early to get here and you get cut off in traffic and you kick the dog on your way out the door, you may not feel saved but I'm glad that I am saved regardless of what my feeling may be in any given moment. So so John is dealing with this sense of internal condemnation that we all face as believers. Now, notice the second thing, and it's this, the confidence that we have spiritually. The confidence that we have spiritually. By this, we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him For whenever our heart condemns us, listen to this, here's your confidence. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So when I'm feeling less than, what I need to do is I need to remember what God has said. I need to remember what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. It's like what Jerry Bridges says, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. God is greater than my heart. He knows everything. And beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, he says we have confidence before God. And then how does that confidence show up in your life? Verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him. So confidence before God impacts my prayer life, doesn't it? If I don't have a sense of assurance, how's that going to negatively impact my prayer life as a believer? Well, I'm not going to be confidently going to God with my requests. I'm not going to find myself actively involved in a local church if I'm not confident spiritually. I'll I'll shrink away. I'll, I'll, I'll pull back. I'll see myself as being less than. I'll fixate on my failures. I'll see myself as not being qualified for service. You see how this impacts you spiritually when you don't have assurance? Listen, John wants his readers to have confidence. God wants you as his child to have confidence. So again, he's dealing with this issue. Maybe they've been reflecting on their spiritual failures. Maybe that's led them to a depression where they lacked assurance. How do we overcome that? How do we deal with that in our life? James Boyce says it this way. We do it by knowledge. Our faith is fed by knowledge. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I need to know the promise. What's the promise of God? The fact that in Jesus Christ, I've been forgiven. 
that in Jesus Christ, I've been accepted. That in Jesus Christ, because my life is wrapped up in Christ, I'm hidden in Christ. When God looks at my life, now he sees the righteousness of his son that's been given to me. And this then becomes the basis for my confidence. That's why now I can go before him in prayer and I can ask with confidence, just like a child does when it crawls up in its dad's lap and begins asking questions. It's it's confidence that the child has that my daddy's going to listen. My daddy's going to hear me. That's the confidence you've been given as a believer. It's not the confidence of the accused standing before the judge. It's the confidence of the child in his father's lap. (laughs) Think of another illustration. Every time the Wizard of Oz is on, I have to watch it. You know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, whenever, I always love watching The Wizard of Oz. I've loved it. I've loved the story my whole life. But there's one scene in particular where you've got Tin Man and Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion and Dorothy. They've all come. They've followed the Yellow Brick Road. They've come to the Emerald City. They've finally been given an audience with the great and powerful Oz. Well, the Tin Man, he desperately wants a heart. And if he can just get to the wizard and ask the wizard for a heart, man, the, the wizard's going to give him a heart. And so there they are. They're before the, 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 the great and powerful Oz. The tin man, he's rattling as he steps forward just to hear the wizard say this. So you dare come to me for a heart, do you, tin man? You clinking, clanking, clattering collection of collisionous junk. I'm glad that God doesn't deal with us like some detached wizard. He's not some unconcerned man behind a curtain pulling a bunch of levers. God doesn't keep his children at a distance. He's granted us access, and that access is ours in Jesus Christ. And so now, on the basis of Jesus Christ, God wants us to come to him with all of our requests confidently and with full assurance that we're going to be heard. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then boldly, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Let's approach the throne of grace with confidence that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 10.19. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Verse 22, Hebrews 10. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Men and women, the gospel brings us boldness and confidence before God. We know that when we ask him things, he hears us. Now, this is not just some blank check. This is not some name it and claim it kind of mentality that John is Describing here, this idea if I name it and claim it, if I you know, claim a brand new Mercedes that it's mine, that's not what he's talking about here. I mean, let me ask you a question. What father in his right mind would ever give his children everything that his children want? Our God, he's a, listen, he's, he's a loving father, but he's not an indulgent father. There are just some things he knows He knows everything better than we do. He knows what's best for you as his child. 
But that doesn't mean we can't come to him and we can ask. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so notice that the asking there in in verse 22 is connected with the commandments of God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We're delighting in him. We're delighting in his will. We're basking in his love. And, and, And the scripture says in Psalm 37, I believe it is, verse four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, when you're delighting in the Lord, he's the desire of your heart. And he will give you the desires of your heart, which means you're going to begin wanting what he wants when you delight yourself in him. So the commands then that we obey lovingly, that's the third thing. And I've got to give you this, and I've got to close because my time is gone. The grounds for assurance, internal condemnation, John deals with that. He deals with this issue of spiritual confidence. But then what about commands, the commands that we obey lovingly? Now from a redeemed heart. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. So notice he refers to commandments, and then he gets specific and singular commandment, and he sort of just lumps it all into one. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So verse 23, you could very well say that John sort of boils down the entire message of the Bible into one verse. What's it all about? It's about believing in the name of the Son of God and loving one another. Is that not the whole message of the Bible? What does the whole message of the Bible do but point me to faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? God incarnate, the one and only sacrifice for sin, The Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I'm to believe on his name. Name, this means everything associated with him. His person, his work. I'm putting my faith and my confidence and my trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what the Bible beckons me to do. And love one another. So this impacts my relationship then vertically and then at the horizontal level with my brothers and my sisters. One final thing, that's the communion that we know intimately. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know, John says it again, by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given to us. So the grounds for a believer's assurance, the Holy Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus about the spirit being like the wind. Man, y'all hear the wind yesterday and last night and just how it was howling and whip. I mean, it was terrible at my house. But it's an interesting thing. You can't see the wind, but you can feel the effects of the wind and you can see the effects of the wind. And so it is with the Spirit of God. Evidence of the Spirit of God in your life as a believer, there will be some objective evidence. What is that evidence? Well, the fact that you believed in Jesus Christ, the fact that you're loving your brother and your sister, and that's a supernatural love that's being produced within you by the Spirit who's come to live within you. And that's what John, that's the point that he's making here. Just like the wind, the Holy Spirit wields great power even though he's invisible. 
But just like the wind, listen, there are some tangible effects that you see. How else can you describe sacrificial love in a believer's life apart from the Spirit of God in that believer? How else can you describe an appetite for the Word of God in the believer's life apart from the indwelling Spirit of God in that believer? Love for the family, how is this produced? It's the Spirit of God living in you as the believer, producing that love within you. And folks, listen, all of this, John says, this is grounds for assurance that we've truly come to know Jesus. Do you ever feel yourself locked up in a castle of doubt? Like Christian and Bunyan's tale? Listen to me. God has put a key in your pocket. And that key is called promise. The promises of God. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Are you confident? Do you have assurance that you possess eternal life? You say, Pastor, I'm just not sure. Why is that? I don't have assurance. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. Well, number one could be that you've never by faith come to Jesus Christ. You've never repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've been basing your spiritual life upon your performance and you've been trusting in yourself and your good deeds and that is not sufficient you need to be saved the good news is you can be saved through looking away from sin and placing your faith and trust in Jesus who died and rose again but if you're a believer and yet you still lack assurance it could just be that you've forgotten you've got a key in your pocket and that key is the promise of God the promise that if we sin we confess our sin he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness the key which tells us that we now have an advocate in heaven in Jesus Christ the righteous who's pleading our case 24-7 before the throne of God the key that tells you that in Jesus Christ your life is hidden with Christ in God and so now when God the Father looks at you he sees his son his daughter and you've been brought into the family given a place at the table and you can crawl up in daddy's lap with confidence aren't you grateful for that key in your pocket as a believer Lord in Jesus name thank you for your word and God how we need spiritual confidence and assurance in our lives the world around us, Lord, is constantly telling us we don't measure up, we're less than. But Lord, we need to preach the truth of the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save the lost and saves sinners and forgives us and makes us his own. Thank you for such wonderful, wonderful words, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.